Hello. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. I'm your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. Today, we have a sponsored episode from Shell, and we are going to be chatting about modern engineering practices and how folks within an organization that's over 100 years old are trying to evolve best practices and make life great for the software developers and engineers who work there. So today we're going to be chatting with James and Trishan, who are engineering leaders within a division that focuses on trading and supply of energy. So James, Tristan, welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. So folks understand a little bit of like how you got to where you are and you know what you could might do within a big energy company. Give us a little bit of background. How did you start you know, working in the world of software and come to be sort of an engineering lead? I've been with Shell for two years now, engineering lead position within the power trading department. And my background is probably, I guess, about 14 years now in energy with some of the majors. And that's as a software engineer, team lead, tech lead, mm-hmm. solution architect as well. Uh, I like to dabble in some of the other disciplines, understand what's going on outside uh, of engineering. Yeah, that's building and designing parts of trading systems. And outside of that, um, I guess 25 years now in IT. So graduate computer science and my stripes for Y2K. So um, went through that as well. <laughs> Right, And so I've, I've seen the IT industry evolve. There's a lot of constant still. But yeah, so that's pretty much me in a nutshell, really. Um, a big, big fan of the Microsoft Stack. And yeah, a really big fan of some of the engineering stuff that's evolving as well now, which hopefully we'll talk about in a bit. Terrific. Interesting. How about yourself? I've been in IT now for about 18 years. So I started off as a software developer in different companies. And I've worked in energy now for about 12 years. And I've been in Shell for about two years uh, of that. Cool. I'm also a big fan of, I guess, a, I've kind of graduated from the Microsoft stack into anything, really. So now it's um, TypeScript okay. or Python or .NET or whatever it may be. Okay, more Catholic with your tastes. <laughs> so for folks who are listening... Yeah, you know, at a high level, what goes on in the you know trading and supply department of an energy company and how is that related to software? I'm familiar, you know, just sort of casually with the idea of trading on the stock market electronically with high frequency trading, but I don't know a ton about commodities or even more specifically about energy. So can you just sort of briefly give us a sense of what that is? Yeah, sure. It's, you know, trading is trading. Effectively, the parts we're involved with are generally the wholesale side of things. So... It's less business to customer type stuff. So it's more trading in the markets, taking assets, trying to remove risk from from operating them, trying to make money out of operating them as well. And really making that, um, see if we can move towards the power in progress, which is the strategy for Shell, which is, you know, how can we move to a a more renewable posture really with the energy? Mm. And that means it's a big, big market, lots of variables. And technology right now is incredibly important to making that work. So certainly my space, which is power trading, you know, it's really important that the technology allows us to move the telemetry from those assets into the, to the hands of the traders and the analysts so that they can optimize and figure out the best way to remove risk or optimize the, the trade flows. And so the, the IT here is, is essential. It's the backbone. It's the only way you can understand what is a turbine or a field of turbines doing so that you can you know really make money and optimize it so it is incredibly important in in this space and so trading latency 
usual stuff. Right. There's lots of competition. So yeah, we got to be good at making IT move quickly for us. Gotcha. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. Tristan, anything you want to add? So I would say the other interesting aspect with trading is the, just how broad the technologies we use are, because as James mentioned, there is the telemetry aspect, how fast we can get data in. But then there's also the aspect of the volume of data and how we sort of optimize. So you know, James is working on power. We've got other teams working on, say, LNG, whereas optimizing vessels or crude ships or something, right? And so we just, there's such a variety in terms of what we do on a day-to-day basis, depending on the different asset classes that we work in. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a lot of latency, a lot of different things to deal with. So what when you all joined, what were the kind of pain points you saw there in this kind of big, diverse department? So I joined from another major, and I guess I was struck by two things. So one is I thought Shell was more advanced in terms of some of the sort of cloud adoption and technologies they were using, but they were a bit behind in terms of governance and process and how long it can take to get something up and running because the process it takes to go through. Yeah, so <laughs> it can be frustrating when you come in and you say, right, here are my objectives. I want to hit the ground running. But actually, there's this kind of long tape we have to kind of deal with and work our way through. And James, what about from your perspective? Yeah, I think, I think I'd think i echo that. Shell's a very safety and security conscious company, which I think sometimes in big corporates manifests itself as being risk averse. And you know, I know we've maybe touched on this in previous podcasts with things like hyper automation. I think one of the challenges, the biggest challenge is how can you take these long established processes, maybe ITIL based or just, you know, it's just the way it is here and actually show that a digital equivalent of a change meeting with a bunch of people meeting face-to-face maybe to talk through a change process actually has a digital equivalent, which can take seconds rather than hours or days sometimes to Mm -hmm. arrange. And so that process piece, I think, is probably the biggest challenge is convincing, convincing an organization who've got all the best interests at heart that there are other ways of slicing the onion. You can do it. You can go faster. You can not compromise on quality. And that's the that was the challenge, I think. And so there's a lot of meetings with those stakeholders to say, hey, we can do this and we're not going to go around it or break it or whatever. It's in fact in the same this digital environment, we have so much audit trail. You know, I can take mm. any change to production and, and backtrack to every dev, every commit to the second. Mm-hmm you can join that up, you know, suddenly you get some real big converts uh, to it. So yeah, I think the, I think the digitalization of some of the processes has been the biggest challenge. Gotcha. Audit trail is the magic word for <laughs> you. Yeah, that's, yeah, what, absolutely. that's what I guess I'm up. <laughs> In some ways, it's almost better, right? Oh, absolutely. As I say, I mean, there's a bridge to cross, which is how do we convince, yeah, and it's quite mysterious, IT, you know, what they do sometimes. Uh, and actually having to bring transformation change process leaders into our world a bit and kind of lift the covers a bit you know and say hey there is a there is this huge amount of information you know everything is 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 audited 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 that was a challenge but once once they kind of had a peek into it 
you know, they were sold. And interestingly, our own security requirements kind of mandate things like an audit trail for things. So I don't know why it was a surprise that some of this stuff, you know, had such a long tail within our world, which was the IT side. So yeah, that was, uh, I guess, the biggest challenge. But yeah, good payback, you know. And, and again, I think it really showed the learner mindset that's prevalent throughout Shell, which is people are willing to listen, people are willing to see the you know, what's what's the payback if we we can have that conversation and take it and you know, explore what's what's going on and and yeah we've got right. some really good examples. Yeah, so Tristan, let's talk examples here. Like you know, what were some of the best practices or new technologies you tried to implement to improve the situation? Walk us through you know some of the solutions you brought to the table. Yeah, so I guess one of the key things I've been pushing for is product team autonomy. So giving the team the the tools and the means to actually do everything that they need to do to accomplish what they're after. And part of that is also a shift left mindset and the way we deliver software. So really trying to move away from this kind of gated process almost of there is a need, we build something, it gets tested, it gets rolled out, and we start again. And really into the kind of continuous delivery mindset of we are kind of understanding these requirements, but we're busy building this piece of software with all the automation tests built in as and when. So part of our definition of done includes testing, end-to-end unit testing, all of this built into our quality gate pipeline that allows us to release continuously. And some of that is also bringing new tooling to support, say, feature flag rollout or could be anything, new components to make development faster, et cetera. So yeah, it's really just been about how do we get the teams to deliver the value that they're creating to the business as quickly as possible whilst remaining secure and compliant in, in the ways of working. Right. You want to evolve while, while uh, respecting the heritage of a, a company like that, right? Have you been able to sort of measure and see any any changes? Have you even like changed how you measure productivity? So... Yes, <laughs> this is a long journey, to be honest. And as we've discussed it, we've kind of gone back and forth about what should we be measuring? What are the right types of measure? Now, obviously, for an individual product team, we tend to measure cycle time. But do we start looking at, say, Dora metrics and how frequently we're delivering and number of issues, etc.? But I think all of these come down to a single team and the improving and the kind of introspection of that team to get better in itself. I think one of the key learnings is not to then take that as a, we want everyone to move to this because look, this team's done this and you're not doing this. So not comparing teams with these different types of metrics because that can Mm. lead to some negativity in the teams. But yeah, we've seen improvements. So admittedly, I'm somewhat lucky in that most of the products I've worked in have been greenfield since I joined. But yeah, I mean, one of our teams is delivering daily, seven times a day sometimes. So I think our time to release is something like 2.5 days on average. So pretty lucky in the space I work in. But again, that's because we've had the benefit of being greenfield and there's some other applications that are maybe a bit more larger, a bit more legacy or have a bit more scrutiny around them there might be kind of SOX compliance these sort of regulatory requirements that you have to take into account right james from your perspective you know what does this look like thinking about continuous deployment feature flagging automated testing shifting left and then also yeah the quality and reliability and sort of you know the metrics you can bring to ensure that 
this is moving things in the right direction, that it's not being gamed, or as Tristan said, also maybe, you know, that it's not introducing something unhealthy to the culture where now teams are competing for this one metric, but that's not necessarily improving the software that's being put out. Yeah, it's a complex space, really, because it's really easy to move one thing and kind of detract or break something else. I think breaking it down, you know, good delivery of value to the business as you know as quick as we can without compromise. I think there's an adage from the construction industry around says something you can have it fast, cheap, or high quality, pick two. Mm. And, you know, it's quite apt really, because generally there is a one of them has to give. And I think with modern engineering, what you're seeing is we can actually challenge that pretty strongly. So things like automation allow you to go quick and not compromise on quality and all of that speed to market is is good for the the, the value side of things as well so yeah it's so complex but it's, it's it's as simple as you know it's the elevated pitch to to people i give is you know what do you do i said oh, it's easy i build the right thing build it right and within the you know that one sentence it's a huge complex world and i think the shift left stuff is is really relevant here because we're seeing really good benefits from looking at things like building the right thing. If you can get the foundations of what you're trying to build right, yeah, makes makes life a lot easier. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you have the, the nth engineering kind of quality in there. If you've built the wrong thing, you've built the wrong thing, you know. So we're putting a lot of emphasis on that. Um, so things like acceptance testing, BDD, uh, so behavior-driven development, and really that's that's at the heart of the shift left stuff. So shared understanding earlier on allows people to a, be more intimate with what the requirements are. Uh, and it kind of, it, we're seeing a lot of benefits around that, which how do we quantify those things with things like rework metrics? So how, how many times does something go out of development into some kind of quality control or test assurance phase and then come back again? And so, right. you know, we can use those kind of metrics. And the metrics, absolutely, I think first and foremost for us, as we, as we kind of started the journey into metrics, it's really clear that, you know, you got to position it. It's it's a tool for a team to use. I kind of call it a a Y radar. That's that's literally what it is. It's for a team to to understand with greater accuracy where they could improve, which mm-hmm. part of the cycle. You know, if you don't know where you're going to make your improvements, if you don't know where to look, and that's why I kind of think of it as a radar. So if you have those metrics, if your cycle times or your rework times are high, then What's at the root cause of that? So that's where it really allows the metrics are key for us to be able to zero in and allow teams to use it as a tool in their retrospectives to kind of bring it in. So it's really important. You know, you can't affect change if you haven't got a baseline or measurement to go from. So, and that's at the heart of the culture we're trying to drive here, which is innovation and curiosity. And and that's basically setting on an experimental basis. Experiments you have to measure if you see the impact of change. If we do our stand-ups dressed as clowns? Does did that make things better or worse? You know, you you got to measure. Right? I don't, you know. So, you know, it's the kind of thing you've got to have some kind of measurement. And and really it's a force for good if the teams can utilize that to to kind of zero in on, on where they can where they can spot those rough edges to zero in on. So yeah. Yeah. Conscious though, you know, of that connotations around comparison and and then there's some healthy stuff out there, but maybe you know, you know, anonymize those sort of things. But really healthy competition is also sometimes good. But yeah, it's primarily it's a t- it's just another tool the teams can zero in on uh, improvement areas. Mm-hmm. Right. 
I like the idea, you know, talking about behavior-driven development. I thought you were going to say clowns. <laughs> I like that too. <laughs> that sounds pretty cool. Man. You know, it's agnostic to what it is you have to build in the sense yeah. that if someone came in and said, well, it seems like we need to throw some Gen AI in here. If, you know, that's what, that's the hot thing. You, you, you figure out how that applies to trading, right? But, you know, the practice between the team of talking about why this works and how you could build it is the thing that's changed and made the improvement, right? Not the software, necessarily the software architecture stack itself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it genuinely is, there is no silver bullet. You know, what I've seen is there is, there's lots of stuff comes and goes, lots of practices. I think it's, uh, it's stripping back to what, you know, what do we need? We want that high quality software as often as we can get it that, you know, supports the business. And yeah, I think things like BDD um, are, are an incredible enabler because it, it facilitates the churn as well. We have a diversity that sits behind it. The technology stacks change, the enterprise changes as well. You know, it sometimes move some of the dials around what what are the big platform tools we get to use and you know having something like bdd in there and that emphasis on quality and shared understanding means we can actually be quite agile with that so we can we can move things underneath the covers we can change the implementation if we wanted to try and replace a whole thing with some ai bits this is a test pass great if it does maybe we have to change the dials mm-hmm. um right. so yeah i think uh, you know that's the approach we you know we need to take uh, I think, yeah, the Gen AI is uh, is quite hot at the moment. And so I would certainly be approaching that with a lot of tests for sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering, you know, you, you're trying to make some big organizational cultural changes here. And my own experience, when you're, when you're trying to steer the ship, it gets harder the bigger the ship is. So how, how you actually get these changes to sort of propagate across an organization? Like, is it just the numbers or do you, do you need more than the numbers? And that is one of the questions that keeps me up at night as well. Um, (laughs) It's a number of factors, I think. It's one is sort of buy-in at the senior levels, right? You need downwards pressure as well as upwards pressure to kind of get things to start moving. And we've been lucky. We have been getting that uh, sort of buy-in from senior levels. And then the other aspect is a community to share this in. So we have... James and I are part of a principal community with Naresh, who you've spoken to before, and Amber. And we share sort of our learnings and that in the different areas that we try. So we might try something out, which may get some improvement, and then we share that. And then can we try and scale it? And so it's really, it's about buy-in from the stakeholders and from the business and kind of the community that you can use to kind of drive these initiatives forward. That's sort of the way we've been driving that mm. and knowledge campaigns, awareness campaigns, trying to get buy into people's learner mindset to pick up the tools. Because I think half of the challenge is also getting people to move out of their comfort zones and to try new things and to understand how that can benefit them. Yeah. So as an example, I, I wanted to say when we chatted in our pre-interview, you mentioned enjoying bringing on new technologies like Kafka and trying to spread those throughout the organization. How does something like that work? How do you cascade that? Yeah, it's, I think one is we are quite diverse with lots of new talent and thinking coming in, let alone the technologies. We have people joining the organization who've maybe used technologies. So the technologies might not be new to them, but it may be new to Shell. So we have a lot of sometimes great initiatives or experience with some of these technologies. So we we often get a good steer from people within the organization. Sometimes it's hard to find those people though. So if an initiative like Kafka is, is spinning up, who are those people who may already be able to help us? So number one, it's getting connected to a, 
maybe a pre-built community of, of experts that we already have within within Shell. It's such a vast place. It's unlikely we don't know someone who knows something about Kafka. So, And that's that's really an interesting side to it because it's really important that we work closely with the architects. So as an engineering concern, both, both Tristan and myself are part of the architecture leadership team as well within Shell Energy. And that allows us to give really fast and accurate feedback on more, I think, engineering and operational things that architects, when they say, hey, there's this great technology called Kafka, it's going gonna, it's gonna to revolutionize, you know, messaging, streaming, way of moving stuff around. Mm-hmm. And we can give a different lens on that. They've got the architectural view. And quite quickly, we can turn that into things like proof of value, proof of concept. Does it work well on the ground? Can we automate these things? So very early on, as soon as Kafka was kind of, uh, you know, pushed onto some of the architecture roadmaps, was the engineers were like, so how do I get this into a CI/CD pipeline? <laughs> how, do, how do I get that topic automated? How do I get this? How do I get that? And, and that's a really good way of, of exploring something in a collaborative way across the disciplines. And we get really good cycles on on feedback on it you know and so we we ended up being able to push something like kafka really quite aggressively because we attacked it from kind of lots of angles which is just really working together architecture plus engineering plus operations as well you know so you gotta you gotta keep it alive once it's once it's up and running you know so so it's kind of multi-disciplined approach to it to a new technology coming on board and so plugging kafka into our enterprise monitoring systems that was a kind of day two check because if we can't monitor it, it's going to be really tough to keep it alive and, and running healthily for the business if we're going to hang a lot of stuff off of it. So, yeah, so we um, approaching new technologies and multidiscipline, you know, almost like it's, it's a spike very quickly, even though it's a huge, expensive piece of enterprise technology. You know, you got to treat it like anything else. Where's the risk? How do you do risk it? How do you get to those operational points as quickly as possible as well with it? So, so yeah, multidiscipline worked really well for us. Awesome. All right. I have to say that I protested many times in the pre-interview, but you insisted. So give us the plug here. I know you use Stack Overflow for Teams. We've been talking about cascading things throughout the organization and trying to help, you know, essentially teams communicate about the you know, way they want to evolve. Y'all use Stack Overflow for Teams internally. What, what role does that play for you day to day and in your you know, sort of broader mission here, which is to bring best practices and technologies to bear so that everyone in the organization on the engineering side feels empowered to do more without having to compromise, you know, of, through extra governance or something that's slowing them down, right? Like the tools and the rules are, are lining up in a way that's good for everybody. So we see Stack Overflow for teams kind of positioned well in terms of a gap that seemed to emerge in how we disseminate information or learnings across the kind of engineering community. I mean, the team itself is dispersed globally. We, we have people all over the world. And with a company the size we are, it's actually quite difficult to know everyone. <laughs> you could imagine if someone has a question, they don't always know who to go or who may have solved it before. So one of the key things we've seen there is a way of quickly finding someone that probably solved this problem before and getting access to them pretty quickly. And then the other the other way we're using that is if we are writing, say, a blog or some kind of white paper, we put it on Stack Overflow. It's a central place where it's quickly become the central place where we put all these types of technical documentation and learnings. Yeah, it's about 
being efficient. So we were doing the effectiveness, which is doing the right thing, which is writing down things, sharing that knowledge. And as Tristan said, you know, the, the organization is, is so big, so diverse across the, the business sectors as well. But knowledge and knowledge sharing is, is a complete constant. Things like networking, things like, you know, connectivity, integration between us and external partners. It's the same old stuff, really. Mm-hmm. And so we realized quite quickly that we were just duplicating. Not that we didn't have an answer. We had too many answers, too many of the same answers. <laughs> right. So we had lots of replication, lots and lots of replication. You know, we were we were writing this stuff down within the teams. And again, I think you naturally turn to the person to your left or right and ask them a question. Hey, do you know, how do I do this? How do I do that? And so you, you were getting these very cellular kind of knowledge kind of domains. And so the answer to it was, what is the answer? And I think, you know, it's pretty obvious to us. What does the world use? To, to help ask and answer questions. And, and that was Stack Overflow. So it's a tool f- to help us deduplicate, share knowledge, ask once, reach so many people broadcast. Right. So yeah, so it's, it was an obvious one because it just just solved a, a, a problem that we'd, we'd solved too many times and you know, we didn't need to solve that many times. And yeah, it's really interesting. We're starting to explore some of the other capabilities, communities and collections particularly are being really useful to us, allowing us to draw circles around particular content areas and knowledge domains and it's just just efficient it's just so much more efficient than having those hundreds of one notes and wiki pages and each one of them with a slight (laughs) little barrier to entry and you haven't got access to this one and i mean you know request to this and and again i'm really a big believer in the the theory of marginal gains you know that's all those lots of little one percenters that are out there. And, and the fact that, we, you know, everyone in Shell can access this without having to go through any particular sign-on or sign-up process, it's just another one of those things. I can send a URL with an answer to anybody and they can receive it and, and make use of it. It's just a great enabler. Terrific. So we usually uh, like to close these episodes with a little look into the future. So where where do you hope to see, you know, your teams and, and Shell engineering in general? end up in four to five years from now? From my perspective, I would like to see the teams almost recognized in, in terms of the capabilities that they have, right? We have some phenomenal engineers and some phenomenal teams delivering value day in and day out. So I guess it would be nice to not be thought of as a as an energy company, but uh, almost an IT company to a certain extent. But I guess more tangibly, I would like to see everything being automated in what we do, right? So we would have automated near on everything in terms of engineering practice and hopefully most of the business practice as well by then. And taking the learnings, putting those into blueprints, which I think Naresh potentially mentioned before. So really trying to take all the learnings we've done and create them into a reusable pattern that each team can just pick up and move along. So we start just delivering, I guess, the business value and none of the other elements that come with kind of delivering a product, right? We, we've we've worked enough to build all those base components that all we're now concentrating on is really that kind of business value. And for our people to become broader in knowledge so they can work on kind of any domain because the business is constantly evolving, the challenges we're facing are constantly evolving, and we need everyone to kind of step up to, to those challenges. Mm, interesting. And James, from your perspective, what does the future hold? Yeah, I think it's 
it's about culture and empowerment. You know, ultimately, what, what do we want is value to the business. And what are the key ingredients there? Certainly, there's a lot of reuse. So we've got initiatives like Inner Source. What I'd love to see is great stats on that adoption. They're good, but they could be better. And again, as we, as we collaborate and communicate more, things like Stack Overflow, allowing us to build connections. And there's an absolutely great diagram, the collaboration diagram inside Stack Overflow, which just shows you where teams are starting to talk to each other, which is bringing some surprising connections. As we build those links across the organization, we would expect dials like reuse, speed to market, you know, coming down. So I would love to see a culture where we can really concentrate on the value because collectively we've worked on the plumbing and we can refine mm -hmm. and iterate and that's really stable. We can then really go to town on the bit that adds value for us. And that's where we'd like to end up, I think. And, and the other thing I think is really interesting, I, I kind of feel like engineering is, is almost a product in itself, you know. It should be nurtured. It has to have effort put into it. You have to be obsessive. If you want to get those hunting down, those, um, those gains, you've got to be obsessive mm -hmm. around each of those areas. So in the, how you build it, how you design it, how you are, you know, you, you got to be obsessive. And we've got people who are, and if we can connect those communities together and start sharing the knowledge, then I think we can, we can really hunt down those 1% in every sector. And that's where we'll get our advantage, I think. So it's building a culture that facilitates that and allows us to really work on the value pieces. So um, I think, yeah, totally agree. It's autom automate all the, all the toil. Toil is, mm. toil is the enemy here. Engineering solutions, uh, I think, are, are the way forward with these things. And I, I think we're seeing engineering really pervade other sectors of the, of the organization as well. So into operations, into site reliability engineering. You know, it's again, it's just bringing smarter answers to things that were previously toil. It's time back to us, time back to the organization to then figure out you know, where we can deploy that time and energy on, on things that add value. So, yeah, I'm super um, buoyant about the future because I think we've got the right people and the right mindset, I think, to, to, to make that a reality. Very cool. All right, everybody. It is that time of the show. Let's shout out someone who came on the Stack Overflow community and help to spread some knowledge today we'll shout out someone who's given a stellar question badge how do i see which version of swift i'm using well you probably need to know that david and you have been given the badge 100 people like this question has helped over 285,000 folks figure out which version of swift nice. they're using i am ben popper i am the director of content here at stack overflow you can always find me on exit at ben popper emails with questions or suggestions for the podcast podcast at Stack Overflow, and um, leave us a rating and a review because it really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find it at stackoverflow.blog. And if you want to reach out to me, you can find me at Arthur Donovan on X. I'm James Simmons, Senior Principal Software Engineer, Engineering Lead for European Power Trading. My LinkedIn handle, I think, is in like Jim, and that's where you can reach me. And yeah, I think um, visit shell.com. That's the gateway to careers, information, everything that's going on at Shell. My name is Tristan Shepard. I'm a senior principal software engineer at Shell, and you can find me on LinkedIn. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.